Over the next few days, I expect you'll be asked by many people, did you have a good Christmas? And most of us will reply, very good, thank you, and how was yours? If in fact we felt lonely, or depressed by it, or exhausted, or had too much else going on in our lives, we probably won't admit it. We'll just say, yes, very good. We might add quiet, or something like that. The pressure to have a good time and to be seen having a good time at Christmas uh, because everyone else is having, apparently, a wonderful time is a very strong pressure. And it's true even if we are Christians, perhaps even more so, because we're expected to enjoy the true peace and joy that for us is at the heart of Christmas. We've known for very many years now that a huge amount of money and business, success or even survival, depends on lots of people having a good Christmas or at least spending a lot of money to have a good Christmas. For weeks beforehand, there's an enormous cultural smorgasbord of uh, things on offer. Children's nativity plays alongside works parties, carols by candlelight plus Christmas cards, the baby Jesus and Father Christmas, uh, God's angels and Santa's little elves, Christmas markets, lights and trees and pantomimes and puddings and turkeys and adverts and sales, all in all mixed together in this smorgasbord. And in it all, neither the people are selling things, nor in fact even the churches really, no one wants a Scrooge to cry humbug or a prophet to point out a difficult truth. And I say it's probably just as true for Christians as it is for sales directors and those who schedule our TV programs. There is a wonderful story to be told at Christmas which is more attractive in the world's eyes than the Good Friday and Easter Sunday story. And quite rightly, we want to make the most of it and the wonderful truths that lie at the heart of it, Emmanuel, God with us. But in the whole of the Christian narrative, there are elements which are also painful, disturbing, and challenging. And we shouldn't hide from them or skip over them too much for fear of being thought a party pooper. In the church's calendar, which we don't follow terribly religiously here at All Saints, what we now call Boxing Day is a day for remembering Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. Yesterday is known as Holy Innocence Day, when we remember the slaughter of young children by Herod. And today commemorates Thomas a Becket, who was murdered inside Canterbury Cathedral. These are all acts of violence perpetrated by men driven by the evil within them. And they're not part of the Christian story for the vast majority of people because they jar, they party dampeners. And in particular, the story of the murder of baby boys and toddlers by the soldiers of King Herod is a particularly disturbing and challenging event. I remember attending an open-air dramatization of the life of Christ a few years ago near that very holy place, Guildford. And one of the most memorable scenes as we sat on the hill on a warm June day 
was the sight of men dressed as Roman soldiers who came galloping over the horizon to seize the little children, the little actors who were children, and uh, start their slaughter. It was very vivid. I wonder what, back in the days of when it happened, what those mothers and fathers were told uh, by the soldiers when they came to carry out their business. Were they told it was because there was a potential rival to the king that they were being killed? Were they told anything? So often in our world, people do a slaughter with no rhyme or reason. I wonder, 30 years later, when some of those mothers and fathers saw Jesus in Jerusalem and perhaps knew about the stories of his birth, did they connect him with what happened to their sons? Did they, as many do, blame God for what happened? Or did they blame Herod, who was a truly cruel, capricious king? Very much like the modern dictators that we've seen in our time, or like dictators down through the ages. Cruel and proud, insecure, ruling by fear and repression. Herod has secret police, a large bodyguard, murders his opponents, he even murders some of his own sons and one of his wives. Built huge vanity projects and taxed the Judean people heavily to pay for them. The, Ro the Jewish Roman historian Josephus said that Herod was so concerned that nobody would be sad when he died that he commanded a large group of men to come to Jericho and he gave an order that they should be killed at, his time, at the time of his death so that the displays of grief that he craved would take place, even though none of them would be crying for him, they would be crying for somebody. Uh, in fact, his son who succeeded him didn't carry out that particular order. That was then. But today is not very different from then, is it? We don't have to look very far to find the sufferings of children and parents across the world, much of it inflicted by men. We know all too well the stories from Syria, from Iraq, Afghanistan, South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, a huge bomb there yesterday, Iran, North Korea, many other places where dictators and governments and warlords threaten and terrify the people of their own country. We know that today there are more refugees, many of them children, than there have ever been in the history of the world. All too often we turn away because the stories are too harrowing. And let's not go near the terrible stories of how men and women who supposedly follow Jesus Christ have abused little children physically and emotionally and sexually down through the years. And then there are times, even at Christmas, when the, when the tragedy is not caused by man's cruelty. Last week, uh, on Christmas Eve, there was a lovely crib service. 80 children, 120 parents, all the children gathered here um, in their costumes, excited, hearing the story again uh, the night before Christmas. But, you know, just a few days previous to that, standing where this table is, there was a picture a large picture of a little 18-month-old girl called Chloe. And there at the lectern stood her father, having just returned from the crematorium, speaking of what a beautiful child 
Chloe was. And so we ask, why doesn't God stop it? Why do the wicked seem to prosper, as the psalmist had it in our first reading? The most challenging question Christians are asked and ask themselves is, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why does he allow all of the suffering that takes place in the world that he has made? It's a question asked in my own family on Christmas morning. Now, now is not the time or place to attempt an answer to that question in full. It's one that's taxed theologians down through the centuries. But there are three things I'd briefly like to say in response to this story, part of the Christmas story, and in the face of all the other evils perpetrated against children. Firstly, we sing and we speak and we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, God in this messy. He came into the world. The mysterious but wonderful truth that is retold every Christmas is that he who called the worlds into being somehow or other emptied himself and took on the form of a man. But he didn't come as the son of a mighty ruler such as King Herod or an even greater ruler such as the Roman emperor, but was born to two ordinary human beings. His entry into the world was not a palace or in the best appointed private hospital with all the medical facilities that money could buy, but a drafty stable. His first bed was not a wonderful Moses basket with luxurious linen and the coziest of sleep suits, but a feed box for animals. His first years were not spent with nannies and nurses all around him, but as a foreigner in a strange foreign country. And we know all too well how he met his end. Usually in our Christmas cards, we like to print a poem or two, or a verse or two of a poem. And this year we chose a poem by the poet U.A. Fanthorpe called The Wicked Fairy at the Manger. If you know it, this is how it goes. My gift for the child, says the wicked fairy. No wife, kids, home, no money sense, unemployable. Friends, yes, but the wrong sort. The work shy, women, wimps, petty infringers of the law, persons with notifiable diseases, poll tax collectors, tarts, the bottom rung. His end? Hmm. I think we'll make it public, prolonged, painful. Right, said the baby. That was roughly what we had in mind. God entered into the messiness and the painfulness and the tragedy of the world of those parents who lost their babies through Herod's soldiers. The writer to the Hebrews put it this way. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of our salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. For surely it is not angels he helps, but men and women. And for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. And because he himself was tested, he is able to help those who are being tested. For we don't have someone who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are. 
God in Jesus is not someone who has been vaccinated against suffering, but one who's entered into much of the human condition and so can look people in the eye and truthfully say, I have walked your road. I know what you're going through, and I've been through it myself. Secondly, God has in the here and now provided a partial antidote to the cruelty and injustice that men and sometimes women would bring on the world. And that antidote is staring me in the face. It is you and me. Those who walk in his ways. And whenever Christians have led authentically Christian lives, they have brought hope and healing to those around them. It may be just to the handful of people that they know in their family and community. Or it might be that they've been able to influence thousands of people and an influence which has gone down through the years that has set up institutions and laws to protect the weak and the vulnerable, to make lives better for people. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus had a very long talk with his disciples, and then at the end of it, he prayed a long prayer out loud with them. And this is part of what he prayed. He said, Father, my prayer is not that you take these friends of mine here out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And as you have sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. And not just them. I'm not just praying for them alone. I pray also for all those who will come after them, who will believe in me through their message. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Father, I've made you known to them and I'll continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may be in them. The work that Jesus began is carried on by those who truly love and follow him. It's true we can't, in the here and now, fully bring in the kingdom of universal justice and peace where there is no cruelty or no pain and no injustice. But Christians can, have, and must be those who bring whatever stones they can bring to build a kingdom that is not of this world. We're not to withdraw from the world nor ignore the world in our holy huddles. Rather, we're to be part of this messy, difficult, suffering world. Yeah, we may not have a powerful searchlight to shine in the dark places, but we can all light and hold a candle. We may not travel 10,000 miles to right a wrong or do some good, but we can all walk a few steps to someone in need. We may not have millions to give away to support a charity, but we all have a few pounds. Herod and other dictators are all brought down in the end, often by the brave efforts of a few people. Yeah, people, even babies, still die from illnesses, but today countless millions of lives are healthy, and live long lives because of those who've dedicated themselves to research and caring and healing people. So one answer, an antidote to the cruelty that we see in the Herods of this world is you and me, or rather, God at work in you and me. And thirdly, in the end, 
God will have the final say and God will have the final triumph. Maybe those first two answers that Jesus suffers with us and we're part of it isn't quite enough for those who've been bereft and bereaved and seen tragedy in their lives, young lives cut short. But in the end, when the Prince of Peace comes again, when this world is wrapped up, when the scroll of history is folded up, God will right those injustices and wrongs. There will be a new city with a, with a river running through it, with trees alongside, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations and for all those countless hurts that have been done. Pie in the sky, says the skeptic. But we know from our experience now, we know of the way in which God has dealt with our lives and how God has dealt with us through other lives, that this, what we experience now, is a foretaste of what is to come. When God, in the end, um, makes right all those things which have been broken and damaged that have taken place in history. That is something to hope for, something to believe in, something to hold on to when we are going through it and when we see our messy, broken, torn world. So it's a somber sermon that you may not have been expecting on this happy Christmas time. But it is, but it, but at, although the story begins with this tragedy, we have those elements of hope that God Emmanuel is with us in these situations, that he has sent us to be hope and healing to right things, and in the end, all will be well as God puts his stamp of authority and makes right that which has gone wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who sees all things and knows all things. And we pray now that you will take the thoughts in our hearts, the circumstances in our own lives, and help us to have hope and faith in them, and help us to bring hope and faith and goodness to those around us. In Jesus' name. Amen.